Um, I'll make an announcement before I start. Um, I'm teaching a retreat in October on Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, my uh, sort of niche, my Dharma teaching niche. Uh, it's um, a four-day intensive uh, retreat down at Vajrapani, uh, which is a Tibetan center outside uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, and we combine uh, both intensive meditation practice with uh, 12-step work. So if you're interested in that, uh, take a flyer or talk to me afterwards. Thanks. I, uh, as I was driving down, I live in Berkeley, so I got to have that rare moment of the Bay Area freeways open, free, <laughs> Sunday morning. Everybody's at home reading the New York Times. At least that's what I would be doing. Um, but uh, uh, it just made me think of this, my Sunday mornings as a kid, uh, which were being dragged off to church and, um, and um, thought of... Uh, I, I had chosen to actually talk on sort of a traditional topic out of the suttas, and I thought, oh, it's very kind of religious, the whole thing, you know. And for the reading this morning from Sutta number 54, verse 9. I, 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 uh, but uh, I, I'll read a little bit of <laughs> just what it was that I was um, working with today. Um, and actually, I'll mention this book, which is a great book. Um, in the Buddha's words, it's by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the great uh, contemporary translators of the traditional uh, Theravadan texts. And he's done a lot of the big compilations. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this uh, Majjhima Nikaya and Samyutta Nikaya. And those texts are just these kind of uh, vast bodies of suttas that are not really organized in any uh, logical way, uh, thematic way. And so he's taken uh, a bunch of different suttas and organized them thematically and kind of taken them through progressively through the uh, Buddhist teaching. And so uh, for those who are interested in sort of exploring the suttas, it's a really great introduction and it's also a lot cheaper than those big uh, sutta books. But uh, in the Buddha's words, really something. Um, so, so this section um, that I am drawing from is called Deepening One's Perspective on the World. So Bhikkhu Bodhi starts by kind of going through the, the very basics, the introduction to uh, the Dharma, which involves, first of all, uh, how we live in the world and kind of creating better karma for ourselves. Um, And then this deepening perspectives on the world is starting to look at essentially the Four Noble Truths, looking at the the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering and the way out of suffering. And he talks, uh, he draws on several suttas that use a theme that he calls gratification, danger and escape. That's actually what I'm going to talk about this morning, gratification, danger, and escape. From one of the suttas, the Anguttara Nikaya, 
the Buddha says, Before my enlightenment, O monks, while I was still a bodhisattva, it occurred to me, what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? What is the escape from the world? And it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. That the world is impermanent, bound up with suffering and subject to change, this is the danger in the world. The removal and abandoning of desire and lust for the world, this is the escape from the world. So this is uh, pretty hardcore Buddhism. Uh, not pulling any punches. And it's a little um, off-putting in certain ways. The Buddha goes on, uh, typical, uh, typically he uh, goes on to talk about um, the dangers in sensual pleasure is the other term that he's using for gratification. And as an example of the unsatisfactoriness of sensual pleasure, he describes a lovely young woman and how attractive a young woman is. And then he describes her aging, getting older and older and then dying. And, and would, would you find it attractive when you know, her teeth were falling out and she was bent over and her, she had no hair? And then when she's dead and looking at her corpse and all these contemplations on the corpse, it all gets kind of gruesome. Not to mention sexist in, in some way. It's kind of this, you know, Lust is the, you know, it's, it's women who do it to us, you know. Um, and of course, his, his audience is monks who are celibate. Uh, so he is trying to uh, motivate them to not have to uh, be uh, overwhelmed with sexual desire. Um, but, the, but I also, you know, I, I read that and, you know, I'm a, I'm a lay person and I'm married and, and, you know, if I don't have some sexual desire, I'm not going to have a very good marriage, actually. So, um, so that becomes problematic somehow for me. I start thinking, oh, God, I guess I'm just not really a good Buddhist because, you know, I like to make love with my wife. And that's just not, you know, how am I going to become enlightened like this? You know, and, and, I'll, and then I, oh, what the hell am I reading this stuff for, you know? <laughs> I don't need this Buddhism anyway. What? Maybe I better check out Hinduism. Don't they have something <laughs> over there? More fun, you know. Now, what's that one, the Kama Sutra? Yes, that, that's more up my up my alley, you know. So, as I as I always find myself doing when when I go through this process, and I, I hope some of you are familiar with this process. Um, of sort of being intimidated by the texts in a way, in a way intimidated by, by the Buddha. I feel like I have to um, come to my own understanding of this, of this teaching. I have tremendous faith in the Buddha, um, but it only goes so far. You know, I, I don't, I can't just take it all at face value necessarily. And, and, and ultimately the faith isn't really that meaningful to me unless it's touched some authentic part of my, myself and of my, meaning myself, my heart, I guess I could say, but also of, of my life that I can see how it applies. 
some notes which will probably not help me at all. My notes usually don't, especially since I can't never read them. Um, but just to, to start by talking a little bit about um, the problem of, of uh, seeking after sensual pleasure and why, why that's a problem. And, and first of all, I'd say that sensual pleasure in and of itself and desire in and of itself, these are not actual, actual problems. If they're, it's how we relate to them that becomes the problem. That's how I see it. And I think that's a, a, a fairly safe uh, thing to say uh, in a Buddhist context. And what, what I mean by that is that as long as we have senses there is going to be pleasure. And as long as there are sense objects, we're going to be drawn to certain objects and pushed away from other objects and, and not interested or not notice other objects, which is sort of the definition of desire, aversion, and ignorance, the three poisons. So, uh, you know, if we have senses, there's going to be pleasure. And this is one of the teachings on, on impermanence. There's pleasure and there's pain. So, so pleasure in itself isn't isn't a bad thing. Um, it's when we set up pleasure as the uh, ultimate, as the answer, as the way, which is really, I'd say, in in some sense, it's it's very um, human because it the. When we look at just the process of pleasure and the arising of desire and then attachment, which is where the problem comes, um, until someone starts to really investigate, our instincts quite naturally make us feel that when there's a desire, then satisfaction is going to come from that. And this is the essential deception of the senses. And this is the essential um, danger, you could say. When you want something, your mind and your heart are telling you that when I have that, there will be satisfaction. Right? It's like um, that, that the state that I'm in now, which is unpleasant, because it's a sense of lack, is the feeling of desire, is a sense of lack, right? That this state will be transformed when I get either that thing or that experience or that person um, or that feeling. And when I get there, then I'm okay, right? Now, the problem with that is the law of impermanence. And this is what the Buddha says in this, in this sutta as he goes on. To, as he says, that, the danger. So that we never arrive there, right? Uh, we have a moment of pleasantness, of pleasure. And then we think, okay, I've got it now. But then what happens? It either dissolves or it starts to change in some way. And we're back where we started. Oh, I've got to get this going again. You know, how do I get some more of this? Or I need a new pleasure. 
no, uh, chocolate isn't doing it for me anymore. I need to switch to uh, caramel. One of my little uh, uh, teachings, this isn't a teaching, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, uh, one of the secrets of Dharma teachers is that when they say chocolate or ice cream, they mean sex. But they just don't want to talk about it. Because, you know, it, in Dharma circles, it's not. Well, I've already talked about sex once, so this is good. I'm breaking all the rules. But anytime you hear that, they say chocolate, just think, oh, it means sex. Right? <laughs> um, uh, So, the, the, so there's this impermanence which makes it so that just you can't hang on to a pleasure. Now, this is you know, my recurrent theme of looking at addiction, which I do in my writing and my teaching, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. Um, this is how addiction happens. Right? The, we have a, an experience of pleasure. We've, first, there's a feeling of lack, and then there's a... We grasp onto an experience and then we want to have that experience again and then again and again and again. And, and then it it's, goes from being a, um, a choice uh, into being a, something that's dictated to us, the addiction. Happens. Uh, but even before this, uh, there are some problems with this whole thing. Um, and first of all, there's this impermanence. And also that no experience is entirely satisfactory. And this is what the Buddha called dukkha. It's usually translated as suffering, but it's also translated as unsatisfactoriness. And this is really that, that feeling of, you know, I got it, what's next? You know, Um, and... You can have this experience, you know, in in large and small ways. I mean, if you've ever, you know, sort of achieved some lifetime goal, there can be a moment then, the sort of immediate aftermath of, oh, is that it? Is that all there is to that? Um, you know, I've I've worked as a, or I've worked towards being a, a writer for many years and was very fortunate and happy to be able to publish a book, but I had um, failed to publish several books before that. I'm working on failing to publish one or two more. (laughs) Um, But I had always heard from people who did get published that, I mean, basically it was this Dharma teaching. They would say, well, it doesn't fix anything. You know, and this goal, this huge goal, you know, because there's sort of, you know, uh, a mythology or, or something, you know, about about a book. You know, wow, you wrote a book and it's published. And it's, wow, it's just, now you are that, right? So this is the other problem. Now you are this being, this person who has done this. And, and you become identified as that. And, of course, the third characteristic, I've talked about impermanence and Unsatisfactoriness. The third characteristic is that you you aren't anything. You aren't any one thing. You can't hold on to being one thing or one one self. So this identity doesn't stay either. You know, you watch. Uh, well, you probably don't, but I, I do. Uh, <laughs> VH1, the uh, 
behind the music. Well, you may also. I'm a musician, so I, I, I love these stories because the story is always that you know, the band has, rises to fame and success and then they all take a lot of drugs and fall apart and somebody in the band overdoses and the other one joins a cult and then the other guy opens a car dealership in you know, El Cerrito. And, and so they, you know, they go and trace these guys, but then eventually they come back together and, you know, the guy gets cleaned from his addiction and the guy gets rid of his car dealership and they, you know, they come and have their, their return to fame. But, but it's this idea that, uh, gee, you know, here's this guy selling used cars and he's a rock and roll star. Well, no, he isn't anymore, you know. But I was, and we cling to that. Well, that's who I was, right? It's the, that um, uh, Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days. He talks about the guy who's the big stud in high school, you know. He was the baseball player. Now he's just the loser, you know. Um, and we have those moments in our lives, and we cling to them and want to hold on to them. But there is no moment that we can hold on to, no self that we can hold on to. So as we age, we, we become different people. Um, so what are we going to do about that? You know, uh, you know I, I'm having trouble with my knees. So I can't sit. I haven't been able to sit comfortably um, with my legs crossed for a little while. And that's like, oh, geez, am I really a Buddhist anymore? You know? <laughs> I mean, what... You know, what are people going to think when they come to see me teach? Are they going to think I'm sort of a half-hearted Buddhist? You know? but, it's, uh, but much more than that, there is some, you know, I love that feeling of sitting with my legs crossed. And I know that what's happening to me isn't just that I'm having a problem with my knee. I'm having a problem with being alive because I'm aging. And, you know, I don't want to be that person who's aging. Um, so this is the, the danger, the unsatisfactoriness. And, you know, I w- want to get back to what I said about um, it's not the pleasure or the desire that's a problem. It's how we relate to it. And what I mean by this is that in a moment of pleasure, there can be just pleasure. And we can just experience it clearly and enjoy it and be present with it. And that's called mindfulness. Just mindfully enjoying something. And, and there are times when I think we kind of get, and when you read a text like this, you know, and sometimes through the teachings, we can kind of get the idea that we're not supposed to enjoy something. Oop, I'm having too much fun. No, wait, I'm never going to get enlightened that way. You know, how can I be more miserable? You know, if you've ever been on a meditation retreat, uh, you watch people like doing walking meditation, and it can look kind of like they're miserable. You know, geez, what's, everybody's kind of moving really slowly, and there's no expression on their face. And it's like, you know, a bunch of zombies. You're thinking, what is this? You know. Well, that reminds. There's a there's a saying in AA where they say. Uh, you're comparing your insides with somebody else's outsides. 
is a, a good reminder when you see somebody sitting really well with their back straight and they look so concentrated. You have no idea what's going on in their mind. You know, they might be completely. They might be exploring Pluto and considering whether it's a planet or not. You know. <laughs> so, uh, so we have to watch watch that one. But the, the danger is not in pleasure or enjoyment or in happiness. It's in clinging to that. In, in clinging. Uh, I, I, I try. One, one of my uh, kind of things, there's a really clear term. One of my things is asking myself, what do these words mean, these Dharma words that we toss around. What does it mean, clinging? I think it's important to uh, consider that. So, um, and, and that's why addiction, of course, is such a great model. Addiction to me is not uh, you know, something that some people have and some people don't. In some sense, we're, I think addiction is really what the Buddha was talking about. That's what clinging is. Clinging to... Um, to a feeling, wanting a feeling to just stay, wanting a moment in your life to just stay, wanting a, a flavor. Yeah. It, it's always strange to me how much, you know, when you have a dinner party or you have sort of a really nice meal, you spend these hours and hours and hours preparing the food and then you, it takes like 15 minutes and the eating is over. That's kind of the epitome of desire. It's all in the build-up. The foreplay is really the best part. Right? That's what? <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm not thinking of any good, good uh, examples of clinging, but I think I've given a few already. So, I, I, um, uh, just to then says. Then to go on to this this third piece, and there's the gratification, there's the pleasure and the desire, the things that draw us to things, and then the risk in those. The, 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 the word danger sounds a little too heavy to me, and I prefer the pitfalls, you know, the shortcomings, the potential problems with this, this um, desire. So it's not that everything about it is bad, but there are risks involved, and that is that you fall into this this clinging, um, and that and that because of dukkha, anicca, and anatta, suffering, impermanence, and no self, the clinging is going to be unsatisfying. It's not going to work, basically. Um, so we have this choice of what we're going to do, and. And the habitual human way of responding to um, the unsatisfactoriness of something, or of any of, of life, is to seek more, more stimulation. And the Buddhist, you know, and really, I think the genius that we probably all recognize and what draws many of us to the Dharma is this complete counterintuitive switch that the Buddha says. He says, no, it's in, you're never going to satisfy yourself by getting more and more pleasures. There isn't some ultimate pleasure to achieve and then you're in Pleasureville forever. 
it's to learn to let go of clinging. Be fine to enjoy, but not to try to keep recreating the experience. And this is what we typically call letting go. In the text, it's often called abandoning. In this text, it's called escape. Um, and this is really the critical, critical point in our practice, is to um, I th- and I think the way it happens is when we see the unsatisfactoriness. That's why we kind of have to go through this process. The Buddha didn't just say, let go of everything. He said, first I saw that there was pleasure and then I saw the danger involved in it and then I let go. So we have to see all these things very clearly. It's not to um, you know, read something or have somebody tell you about it. It's to see for yourself very clearly this process. That's how letting go happens. It doesn't happen through an intellectual process. Although the intellect is, is one way of, of developing it and working with it. Uh, so letting go really uh, a tricky piece for sure because our conditioning each moment we let go the next moment we're very likely to grasp onto again and we and we see this just in our sitting meditation right you're just sitting and you notice a thought and you go oh thought okay let me just come back to my breath and the thought kind of dissolves if you're lucky and um, you know, you're back to your breath for a few breaths or whatever and then all of a sudden you're just back on it again, right? You're thinking the same thought or some other thought. You know, we have this picture or ideal that's put up to us as, you know, the enlightenment or whatever that might be. Um, is this letting go and never clinging again. And that's all very fine <laughs> for those who have gotten there. Uh, I don't know if you know any. But if you do, I'd be interested in meeting them. Um, but we uh, who are not there have to live with this process of clinging and letting go over and over. And there's another trap in that, which is that very often once we become familiar with the Dharma, we start to become interested in this process and trying to let go is that when we find ourselves clinging, we catch ourselves clinging and we start to judge ourselves. And this is, instead of having desire, now we've moved into aversion, which is just the flip side of the same coin and is no more helpful. You know, it doesn't, really help help your Dharma practice to go, God, I'm clinging so much. What's wrong with me? I should let go more. Yeah, I should. Yeah, you should. Right. Um, okay, well, go ahead. Um, and we see how the cycle gets created then in the aversive. 
the aversive cycle gets generated. So that's no good either. Um, This puts us in that delicate place, this place called the middle way. And that's why I think that one of the key elements of this process of letting go is forgiveness. So that when we see the clinging, rather than going to judgment, we go to forgiveness and compassion. Understanding that we are conditioned beings. We didn't make ourselves this way. And that's a very, uh, it's really a delusive way of thinking. I made myself what I am. Well, you know, you're really the result of billions of years of evolution and then conditioning and genetics and, and culture and all of that. And, and you've had some input, you know, in your conscious life. But uh, you're, you haven't created this, this being. So to understand that this suffering, that this clinging that you are experiencing in this present moment is a universal experience that's shared by all beings and definitely is shared by all human beings. And, you know, it's in some sense, you know, it's the tragedy of 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 existence. Um, It's kind of a sad thing to think. Um, But. But so if we can see that and if we can really absorb that and understand, oh, look at this, we're stepping away really from the personal, we're getting out of the the clinging to self. Oh, it's me. This is happening to it's like, oh, this is this is human experience. And look at it. Oh, it's painful. You know, that's that's hard. Okay, I'm going to make the choice in this moment to try to let go of this in this moment. And then we move on. Um, the, uh, I was uh, teaching a workshop last week, um, a day-long Spirit Rock, on, on Buddhism and recovery on 12 steps. And we were talking about um, the process of letting go that in, in the 12 steps, steps six and seven talk about uh, letting go. Step six says, and they're about God, and I was actually talking about God and the Buddha as kind of a theme this day. But step six says, we were entirely ready to have God remove all our defects of character. And step seven says, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. This is you know, a very theistic kind of approach, but it's, it's about letting go. And so I asked people, I had them go into small groups and talk about um, how it was that they let go. And once they, if they could come to understand what their process for letting go, what, what allowed them to get sober, for instance, or to, to let go of, of difficulties or, or difficult tendencies in their, in their lives, um, how they might uh, develop that ability to let go. So afterwards, we were having a discussion, and uh, one of the people raised... Raised their hand. This woman raised her hand. Someone who's actually come to a bunch of my workshops, and and she said, "I realized that the letting go for me when I let go of my alcoholism was when I hit bottom, when I was just so desperate and suffering so much. And when you say, how can I 
you know, develop that, I think, oh, I, I immediately was like, oh, right, that's really interesting, isn't it? So, you know, wh- why would you want to develop the ability to hit bottom and, and you know, have your life completely fall apart? And I, and I stopped for a moment. And then it came to me that, in a sense, what we're doing in meditation practice is making ourselves more and more sensitive to suffering so that we notice suffering much more quickly so that we don't have to hit a terrible, you know, down and out bottom before we want to change. Because what makes us want to change is when we feel bad. I don't like this. I want to improve my life. How can I, you know, how can I make things better? And how can I let go? Well, when you see suffering, that's when you're motivated, right? So when you become, as your practice deepens, and you become more and more sensitive to dukkha, and you see it, how it arises, it's much more easy for you to let go much sooner. Um, it's the kind of picking up the, the hot coal idea of, of letting go of suffering. If you, know, if you pick it up, and you, you feel that heat is so painful, you drop it immediately. Nobody has to say, let go of the hot coal. You know, it just, it just happens instinctively. And this is, this is, I think, part of what we're really developing in this practice, is developing the sensitivity to see suffering on closer and closer levels so that we are able to let go more and more quickly. And it leads to less and less trouble, you know, less and less clinging, uh, less um, getting our... We, we go... F- not as far down the line. You know how when you, a thought starts and sometimes you'll notice it after you've gone through 20 different permutations of the thought or you've kind of gone off on the whole story, you've built the whole structure. And when you get, you know, when you're more sensitive, I, I don't want to say, you know, as your meditation gets better because it's some, you know, some days are better than others and that's, you know, no matter how long you've been practicing, I can... <laughs> vouch for that. I was falling asleep this morning. So. Um, but when we have a moment, when we catch it sooner, it's like, oh, I don't have to go there. I don't have to build that whole structure. I just, I see that, that where it's going to lead. I see the danger in that. I see the unsatisfactoriness of that. And I feel the dukkha in that. And it's just easy to breathe and let go. So, I hope this has been of some help. I hope these words are useful. And um, we have a few minutes left. Um, I understand we go until about quarter of. So if there are any questions or thoughts um, on this or any other topic that you might have in mind, I'd be happy. Yes. Wait for the microphone, if you would. <laughs> cling, cling to that thought. <laughs> yes, when you say that the, uh, to be able to let go, you have to be more sensitive to what would happen if you go keep on going on the same path. Yeah. Why is it easier for some people than for others? 
za noses. To do that? To do that, it seems such a simple uh, mind process. Why? Because everybody has different conditioning and different qualities, you know, different karma, you could say. So, uh, you know, it's why are some people able to pick up an instrument and start to play right away, and why are some people tone deaf? It's just, uh, you know, people are different. Now, I would also say, I'm not sure what you're basing the idea that why are some why is it easier for some people? That sort of implies that you've been able to get into people's some people's mind other people's minds to know what was difficult or easy for them. Um, well, I was thinking of uh, uh, addictive personalities. Oh yeah, yeah. Why, why do people some people cling more? Right. Uh, well, that's. You know, the, one of the things the Buddha said about karma is that you can't untangle it all. You can't unravel it. And, and you, you know, there's lots of theories about why become, people come, become addicted. Ultimately, it's not, to me, the important question. The important question is how do I become unaddicted? You know, um, and you know, and some people, it's yeah very difficult for them to become unaddicted and for other people it's it's easier um, I would say just generally in terms of practice though that uh, with with devotion to practice that anybody can get good at letting go or you know better at letting go I don't, it's not a you know it's not something that requires a special talent to do. I, I think it's an inherent human capacity. I think this is part of what the Buddha is saying. That he w- he said, you know, I wouldn't teach this if it weren't possible. Uh, so, thank you. Thank you for your talk today, and especially for your sense of humor. Um, what drew you to blend the 12 steps in Buddhism, if you don't mind answering that? I, well, I actually started practicing Buddhist meditation before I got sober. And um, when I got sober, I couldn't figure out how Buddhism and the 12 steps went together. So I just didn't worry about it. For about five years, I just kind of did them both in parallel, but not together. And eventually, um, I found myself going deeper into my Buddhist practice after I was about five or six years sober. And um, I started to see some of the connections, and I started to want to see some of the connections. Um, In the the 12-step program, one of the things that drew me to it sort of allowed me to feel somewhat at home when I arrived at at AA was um, that meditation is part of it in the 11th step. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. But anyway, I was like, okay, I'll let go of the God thing and just, I see meditation, I'll look at it. And I saw that 
when I, as I hung around uh, meetings, I saw that not many people meditated. And, and when they would have a meditation meeting, there'd be like a five-minute meditation period. And then they'd go, and then it would be back to the usual talking. And the talking is extremely valuable, and I don't think Buddhists do it enough. Um, but, uh, you know, so I sort of started to feel like, oh, I'd really like to be able to help people in 12-step programs to learn to meditate. Uh, and then over time, then uh, some years after that, I, my, my teacher invited me to start to teach. And, and then I found that I kept, in my Dharma talks, I kept referring to the 12 steps. And people kept coming up and going, oh, I'm in the program too. <laughs> and I started to see there was this whole subculture within the Buddhist world that I wasn't the only alcoholic Buddhist around. And then I thought, well, maybe this is worth exploring more. So uh, it's become quite an inspiring, uh, amazing uh, experience. Uh, I hear from people all over the world now who have read my book and say, oh, thank you. You know, I really struggled with the language of AA and now you've really helped me to do that. It's an amazing gift uh, to get. And um, uh, yeah, it's so that's something thank you like it yeah so um it's 10:45 and um i don't know how you usually end things but uh in the groups that i sit with we usually have a a moment of closing usually some metta practice but we don't really have time for that but let's do a little dedication of merit so just sit comfortably for a moment in this tradition one of the ways that we let go of our own grasping for enlightenment is by offering whatever benefit is derived from our practice to the awakening of other beings. This is a lofty ideal and a beautiful one. And we can see it happening in a real way. as we transform our own hearts, we touch the lives of the people around us. As we heal ourselves, we begin to be able to help others to heal. So may we find ways to Share the Dharma with others to share our loving kindness, our compassion, share our intuitive wisdom, and may our efforts and practice be of benefit and lead to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you.